Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And you know what? Um, 21 years ago, man, that blows my mind. But 21 years ago, the world was very concerned that a a clock, a, a, a digit changing from 99 to 00, zero was going to completely turn our technological world upside down. I'm talking about the Y2K problem. And some of you out there might be too young to even know what that is, uh, or maybe you were born after 2000. You have no clue. But for those of us who were working in the 90s, this was a big deal. It was something that a lot of people were worried about. And it all had to do with those two little digits at the end of the year. And uh, we're going to learn about why Y2K didn't end the world because, I mean, spoiler alert, it didn't. So let's listen back to this episode, which originally published on January 15th, 2014. Like someone took building a shortcut, a shortcut, and yeah. now things aren't working. And also, it's building up to something terrifying. Yeah, uh, it's going to build up to a nonstop replay of Prince's 1999 over and over again. Which it starts out awesome, but as it goes on, let me tell you, that gets old. Okay, we're talking about the Y2K bug, obviously, people. Yes, yes, uh, that is what our episode is about today. All of our fans who hate it whenever I do cheesy humor, I apologize. You don't really apologize. I, it is who I am. So the reason why we're talking about Y2K bug years after the whole issue happened is because, you know, we ask you guys what you want to hear. And in this case, a listener named James sent us a message on Twitter and said, Hey guys, you should do an episode on the Y2K bug. Heart, heart, James. Well, James, we heart, heart you too. We and do. So now we're going to do our episode on the Y2K bug. It's a pretty interesting story because it's one of those things where, you know, it, it really illustrates a few basic things about computing and human nature in general. One of those things is that when something new is created, no one who is around has any idea of how long it's going to last. Right. And they uh, don't have any any appreciation of things that they do then lasting into well into the future. Right. Well, especially things like computer programming. I yeah. mean, no one in, say, the 1960s or 70s was expecting any of the programs they were writing to last for 40 years. Yeah. Computers were developing very quickly and the general thought was that, you know, this is changing so fast that programming is going to change in a, at a crazy speed, too. But as it turns out, while the hardware changed, the practices that were established early on remained pretty much standard. And also a lot of this old programming would find its way into subsequent generations of software. So even if it wasn't something that people were continuing to do later on, uh, there'd still be these old fragments of code incorporated into stuff that did have it. Now, we're kind of dancing around what that old thing was. Do you... uh, oh, 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 the, the the old thing, of course, being, I, I just got really excited that I knew the answer to this. Um... <laughs> 
um, uh, being the digits in the year. Yeah. So here was the issue. Back in the 50s and 60s, when programmers were having to put a code in for the year, which is important for certain types of calculations, right? Anything that's time-based, obviously you need to have a way of recording the time so that you can compare times from different points and draw your calculations based on that. Uh, Lots of different reasons. You know, for for, for example, when people have been depositing paychecks or... Right. So if you if you have a uh, a bank account that has interest, for example, mm-hmm. time is obviously a factor there. It's not just the amount of money that you've been continuously putting into or taking out of that bank account. It's also the amount of time since you established that bank account. And there's some complicated calculations that are very time sensitive. So you have to have that kind of stuff built into your algorithm, right? Uh, right. Or in other cases, you know, records of dates of birth or um, dates of medical surgery sure. or all kinds of things. Yeah, it, it, so many different applications to the point where there were even technologies that you wouldn't imagine would ever need to know what year it is that had the stuff built into it. And here's the problem when you have two digits for your year. See, the computer programming getting started in the 1950s and 1960s, they figured, hey, we've got practically half a century before we have to worry about two digits turning into zero, zero. Clearly, we're going to totally fix this later. And computer memory right now is incredibly expensive. So, so let's 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 be really conservative and just use two digits for the year and we'll be fine until these other problems work themselves out. Oh, and, and, and I mean, computer memory was so precious and saving, especially across the course of, for example, an entire spreadsheet full of interest calculations, saving yeah. two digits per year was big. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so just by doing a month, month, day, day, year, year, you know, yeah. just just the two digits each. Yep. You could save a huge time and hassle for yourself at the at, at that current moment. Right. Right. Because, I mean, you know, think about just a few years ago, how expensive it was to buy, say, a terabyte for a hard drive compared to today. Now it's much more uh, affordable. Oh, sure. Well, you know, as, as opposed to when I was a kid, when a terabyte was a completely unimaginable amount of information. Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, I couldn't imagine ever filling up a megabyte of right, space. Right. So, you know, as time has gone on, memory has become less and less of a problem in the sense that we're able to make more of it more affordably. But, but right back then... then very expensive and precious stuff. You only had so much to work with, and it was expensive to use. So cutting it down to two digits made sense at the time. But the problem was that when you roll over from 1999 to 2000, in the computer terms, it goes from 99 to 00, which meant that people weren't really sure what was going to happen. Oh, right. Would the computer think that it was all of a sudden 1900? Yeah. Would that completely bork all of your calculations for, for example, interest rates? Yeah, or the the age of a person. So your example, if it's figuring out the age by subtracting the current date from your date of birth or the date of birth from the current date, I should say. Right. Uh, so let's say it's 99 and you were born in 90, then that's pretty easy. It's like 99 minus 99 years old. OK, got it. But then let's say it goes zero, zero and you were born in 90. So it's zero, zero minus 90. Suddenly you're like, uh oh, um, Am I getting negative numbers? Because now a negative age, that doesn't make sense. And so you can have all sorts of computer problems ranging from the financial industry to health to all pretty much everything that had any sort of code in it that included the year. Uh, which extends to things like like elevators that had microchips. Yes. Yeah. Elevators. I mean, that's pretty that, that was a real concern. People are like, I do not want to be in an elevator on New Year's. 
Eve, 1999, because you don't know if that thing is going to make it to the floor you want by 2000. Uh, right. And I mean, and of course, you know, they, they weren't afraid that the elevator was going to slow down to a rate, to a negative motion rate or right. anything like that. But they were afraid that the code and the microchip crashing would... I don't know, cause a fire and make the elevator drop or just or just stop or just stop entirely and refuse to open. People had a lot of just uncertainty about exactly what was going to happen to code and whether or not it was going to crash an entire system when this this year changed over. Right. And so uh, this this fear started to kind of rear its head in the 1990s. Uh, it really reached a fever pitch in 98 and 99. That was when I think the general public became really aware of it. Before that... Due to media complete oversaturation. Yeah. Yeah, it got a little a little crazy. I mean, a lot crazy, depending upon where you lived. In the United States, it certainly became crazy. So you had uh, you had computer scientists who were and programmers who were saying earlier than this, like, hey, guys... Maybe we should, you know, we should fix, fix this. This is, you know, this is a problem. And instead of perpetuating it across multiple industries ad infinitum, maybe we should uh, address it and that way just establish a new rule going forward. Now, computer memory, not such a big deal now. Why don't we why don't we fix it before we get? Hello? So anyway, is this thing on? Hello. And the problem was that a lot of people didn't listen until it started getting closer to 2000. And people began to really worry about the possibility that this could bring about if not some sort of technological Armageddon, at least a lot of glitches and problems that could have been avoided. So then they had to say, well, what are we going to do about it? The obvious solution was also the most time-consuming and expensive one, which was to manually go through and start updating code and changing it so that it's a four-digit year instead of a two-digit year, and uh, and then thus increasing the usefulness till at least 9,999. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, the the alternate there is to recode just so the programs would recognize that zero zero probably meant two thousand instead of nineteen hundred. But that's a less effective solution. And B, I mean, you just need to change it over at the next turn of the century. Not that probably those same programs were going to be in use, but you never know. Right. Yes. Yeah, so um, that's the thing is that you know you have these legacy systems that certain companies rely on that were originally programmed, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, they continue to rely on them because they do exactly what the company needs them to do. Uh, right. And OK, so so either way, these changes might have to be entered by hand thousands of times or hundreds of thousands of times in a single program. Um, and each change then has to be tested against errors. Yeah. Of course, eventually code was developed to help automate the process. But you know, I mean, it, it was just a big undertaking. Yeah, you might remember if you watch the um, the documentary Office Space that the characters at Inatech, the company in Office Space, uh, were they that was their job. They went into other companies and helped update their code to meet the Y2K issue, which kind of raises another question, which is, what was this company going to do after the year 2000? But at any rate... That, that was actually a very real concern. I mean, yeah. Office Space is a, is a great parody of all of that kind of stuff. Sure. But, uh, but there was a, a concern that, you know, with, with all of these extra programming jobs that were going to be created, that, that businesses would crash and burn. And some of them did. I mean, most of them just moved on to other things and found freedom and not having to do this incredibly tedious work anymore. Right. And then there was a lot of other crashing and burning in the tech industry for unrelated reasons. Yes. That was the whole uh, dot-com bubble burst, but it didn't have anything to do with Y2K directly. So uh, 
here's the other problem is that a lot of these programs didn't recognize even if even if 2000 was going to be fine, even if they could recognize the fact that it was 2000. That it was a four digit year. Mm-hmm. They didn't necessarily recognize that 2000 was going to be a leap year. Right. And here's the reason why. So leap years actually follow an algorithm, a set of rules, obviously. So the, the basic rule is that for every four years, you add in an extra day, a leap day at the end of February to balance out the calendar year with the solar year. Because a solar year is close to 365.25 days. Not quite 0.25, almost 0.25. Which is important. Yeah, so if you stretch out over an incredibly long time for us humans, let's say a few centuries, your calendars will start to become misaligned because it's not quite 365.25 days in a solar year. So that means that occasionally you have to ignore the leap year. And the way the rule goes is that if the, uh, let's see if I can get this right. If the century is divisible by 100, but not by 400, it would not be a leap year. So if it's divisible by both 100 and 400, it's a leap year. So in other words, 1700, 1800, and 1900 were not leap years. But 1600 was. 1600 was because 1600 is divisible by 400. Yes. 2000, also divisible by 400. So it should be a leap year. However, because you just have 00 as the digits... If the computer thinks it's 1900, the computer also knows the rule that 1900 is not a leap year. So, so, it, so it says, hey, this uh, this big zero kind of number is totally not a leap year. Right. So it's only 365 days, not 300. You know, 300. We, we don't have a February 29th this year is what right. I would say. But there was totally a February 29th this year, which meant that other calculations would get thrown off because it wouldn't take that leap day into account. So all these calendar applications weren't also going had to, to be corrected. So suddenly people were like, oh, boy, this is a big old mess here. We've got to fix this. And uh, and so so a lot of time and effort and attention was directed to this. And there was a third problem as well, wasn't there? Oh. Having to do with all of the nines. Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally forgot about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. Yeah, so, OK. In the old days, children gather around the gather around the digital fireplace. <laughs> you know, if Netflix still has that digital fireplace, go ahead and start it start up. It up. Back in the old days, children, sometimes uh, programmers, in order to designate the end of a program, would just type out a string of nines. It was essentially just the code to say, this is where stuff ends, y'all. Uh, so 1999 had a date in it, September 9th, that if you were to write it out, it'd be like 9999, you know, a lot of nines. And the, the worry was that certain programs, which would, would see that as meaning this is where stuff stops <laughs> and would stop working. So you had a lot of digit problems here. So some of this you could count on, you know, just a, a kind of a, a, a jerry-rigged system of this is how I'm going to designate this is the end of a, a program. And it was just kind of arbitrarily chosen. Sure. That would be the 9999 stuff. Some of it was more of a practical consideration, the idea of we need to save time and money, so therefore we're shortening this year to two digits. In either case, it ended up meaning lots and lots of work for people in the late 1990s. And um, you got a lot of attention. I mean, there were... There were things like uh, uh, industries that were already taking advantage of the time in the 90s to address this. The software industry was way ahead of the game. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, back by, you know, I think 95, 96, uh, a few people were on top of it. Certainly by 98, uh, a lot of people had already kind of corrected the problem. Right. So the software that was being produced from that point going forward had already addressed it. Now, granted, there was still software that was out 
previously that had this old code in it, but the the new code coming out of the software industry had uh, had adjusted for this kind of problem. But there were other industries that were lagging behind. And in fact, according to one study, uh, the Capgemini America consulting firm did a study. They found that the state and federal government systems were the furthest behind. And when you think of all the information that state governments and federal government here in the United States requires to operate, things like taxes that are dependent upon or infrastructure infrastructure yeah your water systems all sorts of stuff that rely on computer systems that are run by these agencies your your spy satellites all all of this stuff communications everything i mean there's entire industries that are dependent either completely or in part on state and federal systems all of those were at risk because they were the furthest behind they had the least amount of progress on addressing the y2k problem uh such a huge deal that the president at the time, it was Bill Clinton, uh, signed the 2000 Information and Readiness Disclosure Act into law, and that was designed to create a collaborative environment among multiple industries. So that as one industry developed the best practices and tools to address the Y2K problem, it would be ins- there was an incentive to share the information across other industries so that we didn't so have... So it's not a competition. It's it's a, hey, let's all get this done together yeah. kind of issue. They're like, I would like my stuff to continue not being on fire. How about I give this information to you guys and maybe that will decrease the chance that my stuff will be on fire in 2000. And uh, that, was a, that was a big motivator, as it turns out. Uh, <laughs> helped a lot. Uh, there were other... Areas of the world that were also being very responsive to this. The European Commission issued a report about Y2K to the European Union member countries that all kind of got them on the same page. The British government announced that the British military would be on hand to assist local police forces in the event of emergency services breaking down as a result of the Y2K problem. And there there was so much hype. I mean, I mean, mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about hype in a second. Uh, the United Nations held a conference on it. Uh, they were trying to facilitate more sharing of information, particularly. Well, that's fair. I mean, but yeah. you know, that's, that's cool. That's, that's not hype. That's preparedness. Right. Well, they were particularly worried about a lot of regions in Asia that were, that were at least thought of to be behind the curve on this, on, on addressing the Y2K problem. So they wanted to make sure that everyone in the world had an uh, equal chance of catching up so that they could minimize any effects that the Y2K problem would have. Now, keep in mind, this is still at a time where no one was really sure what was going to happen, at least not on a global scale. There were some people who were saying like, well, you know, this system over here is probably going to be OK because it's not really critical. And even even if it were, you know, it, it would just be something that we could adjust by writing a couple of extra lines of code to correct that problem. Right. Other systems, people are like, I don't know if that airplane will stay in the air. I mean, that was a legitimate fear. Some people, I don't know. OK, maybe not legitimate. Maybe not legitimate. That was a that fear. Was a fear that people, <laughs> that people had. had. Absolutely. And, and you know, on a on a person to person basis, the amount of panic varied. Yeah. Um, and probably were, depending on how much media they had consumed about it and I, I how um, excitable they were to begin with. I want to say toward the end of 1999, a lot of the media coverage lent, uh, leaned more toward the, the satirical and the the kind of jokey oh, world's going to end next month kind of stuff. Less less of the actual fear mongering style and more of the. Uh, no one's really sure, but, you know, the worst case scenario could be that kind of thing. So it it wasn't at least as, as bad as, you know, next month, everything you know will be different because nothing's going to work. And, you know, start building your bomb shelter now. 
um, you know, there weren't a whole lot of serious reports that were coming out like that. I'm sure the onion had a lot of fun with it. We'll hear more about the Y2K problem and why it wasn't as uh, big a calamity as we were originally expecting. But first, let's take a quick break. All right, so we're back. Now, the clock is ticking down. I know you've been waiting, waiting all episode to learn what would happen. Yeah, 1999, about to turn to 2000. What happened? Okay, so technically we're all still here, so I guess we can draw some conclusions right off the bat. Huh? And, and, and and I mean, this event is in our relatively recent past. Yeah. It was really only 14 years ago. And most of you guys are probably remembering this. Uh, some of you, some of, some of you folks who are in maybe middle school or whatever, maybe this is all new to you. In which case, uh, hey... Welcome to the ridiculous panics that the rest of the world went through before you were born. Your parents were silly. Yeah. Uh, so as it turns out, a lot of the work that was being done leading up to ni- uh, 2000 was uh, successful. I mean, and it was a lot of work. It was. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, the one estimate said that globally, the world spent about three hundred billion dollars. That's billion with a B to address the Y2K problem, and about just a little less than half of that was spent in the United States alone Wow! to address this issue. And that ranged from everything from wide computer networks to, like we were saying, microprocessors that control things like microwaves. And you know, really, in that case, it was more of testing it to see, you know, if you were to, to digitally alter the clock of the machine, would it continue to operate properly? That kind of stuff. Right. And, and in the most, most cases, things, things were absolutely fine. And, and people, people kind of knew that. I mean, you know, there was a little bit of this media frenzy, but, um, but AP polls in 1999 indicated that 92% of Americans expected minor problems at worst. Um, yeah. but that some 30% had planned stockpiles just in case. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, Food, money, that kind of thing. That was, yeah. Yeah. They weren't necessarily creating an armed militia, <laughs> although there was some of that going on too at the time. There was. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where I think a lot of people were, were jokingly saying like, oh yeah, I mean, everything's going to be fine. Nothing's going to, be a problem. But then like, you know, but just in case, I think I'm going to take it easy this year. Uh, you know, or, or just that day yeah, specifically. That, that's, right. Yeah. New Year's Eve to 2000 to make sure that, mm-hmm. you know, let's let's not let's not put ourselves in danger unnecessarily. But nothing's going to happen. You know, cautious optimism is probably how I would describe it. Yeah. And basically none of those big doomsayer kind of things, the the worldwide power failures, the total breakdown of transportation infrastructure, the yeah. planes falling out of the sky. None, none of that. None of that happened. Now, to be fair, our, one reason a lot of that may not have happened is because so much work was done addressing the problem. Right. I still don't think that every computer in the world would have simultaneously caught on fire and started eating your face. No, that's the likelihood no, of that was very low. Pretty low. Yeah. I mean, some other spooky stuff would have had to have been going yeah. on. But, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, we're talking some paranormal activity stuff at that point. Uh, but no, I, uh, I think, you know, here's here's the problem with assessing how Y2K worked out. Because a lot of people said, oh, it was a lot of worry over nothing. Nothing really big happened. But part of that was because so much work had been done to address the issue on a, on a code level to make sure that m- the code in some very critical systems was updated to not have this problem. So you could argue that the reason why there wasn't a problem was because we 
caused such a fuss in the first place. Sure. It's also possible that if we had never done anything and someone in 2000 said, hey, guys, I just thought of something that we probably should have thought about before, but everything's fine now. But, you know, what could have happened was blah, blah, blah. Sure. That might have happened too. that clue ending. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like this is that's what really happened. But here's what could have happened. (laughs) That's kind of the opposite of the clue endings. But yes. um, Yeah. So the the you know, it's hard. It's impossible to say in hindsight. Right how it would have turned out differently had nothing happened. I I imagine that we would have seen a lot of other glitches and systems that would have been time-consuming to fix, and we did see some glitches, right? It wasn't like everything went off without a hitch. Uh, right. Well, okay, mo- most of the glitches were kind of preemptive. Um, sure. Some, some large chemical plants and oil pipelines were shut down preemptively during the transition and, and rebooted. Um, service was suspended on like major freight railroads and Amtrak on New Year's Eve for, for a final round of equipment and signal checks. Um, yeah, uh, uh, you know, the, the the workload on programmers over the past couple of years had had been increased like 20 to 60 percent in order to solve the problem. So that was an effect anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it, there there were, uh, you know, some of the some of the problems that came up were very comical in nature. Yeah, you know? um, there were. I mean, okay, there were legitimate, like, a few hundred reports of errors among small businesses, but need, most most of them were resolved in a matter of hours after sure. they had been reported. Um, there was the temporary shutdown of a Defense Department ground station that, that processed info from a, from a satellite, from a spy satellite, um, but it didn't have any major consequences. Right. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> there, were, there were a couple really good ones um, for... Okay, so, so this was when uh, uh, Al Gore was the vice president. This is my favorite of the Y2K problems, by the way. Um, for, for a minute, his um, town hall webpage informed visitors that it was January 3rd, uh, 19,100, yeah. if they arrived via Netscape, and uh, January 3rd, 19,000... No, wait, 192,000, I'm sorry. Oh, wow. If they were coming in via IE. Via Futurama, we know that by that time, Al Gore's head is in a jar. So maybe it was accurate. It could be. It could have been like this was a glimpse into the Futurama (laughs) future. Um, Um, There was a a glitch in the um, New York Times. Oh, I love this one, too. No, this one's my favorite. I I retract my (laughs) earlier statement. This one's my favorite. They can both be your favorite. Um, Okay, so, so there was a telephone service that would read a, an automated selection of the New York Times and other newspapers to um, New Yorkers with, with vision problems. Right. And um, it informed clients that they would be hearing the January 3rd, uh, 1900 issue. So so day. before we start recording, I said I could just imagine the top headline. Dirigible races reach inevitable draw for the year running. I yeah. think I, I want I kind of want that alternate history. Right. Where you, it would, what would have been amazing is if it had actually read the headlines from January 3rd, 1900 at that point. Now, that's not exact. That's not what happened. It just had the date wrong uh, on the, the date part. The actual content was was the same. The, right. was the one for January 3rd, 2000. It's, it's not like the computer um, glitched and went and looked up some microfiche and right. brought it back and read it out. To <laughs> I the reader. so wish that had happened, though. That would have been so awesome. That would have been delightful. Um, I mean, like other stuff, uh, th- there was some some legal battles that arose over all of this. Xerox, Nike, Unisys and, and a whole bunch of other companies mm-hmm. or well, a, a few major other companies. Um uh, sued their insurers for reimbursement for having to have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on these repairs, um, citing language from 19th century business contracts wherein insurers had to repay ship owners for money spent trying to prevent a ship from sinking. Yeah, 
Interesting sighting of a precedent. Yeah, uh, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> um, the suits generally generally settled on on the side of the insurance companies because I, I think arguing that uh, because <laughs> nothing bad happened, then we shouldn't have been forced to fi- prevent something bad from happening is a weird argument. Because if nothing bad happened, that's possibly proof that the thing you had to do worked. Oh, well, and, and even, I mean, even if you, if you spend that money preventing a ship from sinking or, or preventing a computer from crashing, um, you know, in, in this particular case, the companies had seen the ship sinking several years before they actually informed the insurance company that it was an issue. And so in that case, the courts were like, you knew about this beforehand. This Interesting. is, this yeah. is stuff that you had to take care of. And uh, um, I see there were some other like practical, uh, Outcomes that were, you know, just the way people had reacted to Y2K and started stockpiling stuff. That meant that once the new year happened and and society did not crumble, uh, a lot a lot of people returned space heaters. Yeah, um, like so many that that Sears started uh, incurring a, a tw- or not incurring, but um, but charging a twenty percent restocking fee. Yeah, yeah, um, because people, so many people were worried that the infrastructure would be gone and that they wouldn't have gas or electricity. You know, and then they once once that those problems went away, like once 2000 came around and everything was fine, then they're like, well, I don't really need this anymore. <laughs> uh, t- charity groups collected a lot of extra canned goods that year. Yep. Uh, not so many people traveled by airplane on New Year's Day that year. Right. I mean, not that many people travel on New Year's Day to begin with. Right. But, but even uh, statistically even fewer. fewer. <laughs> yeah. There were some of those people who were worried about that whole airplane dropping out of the sky thing. And here's the thing is that uh, while this Y2K problem sounds like it's like, well, yeah, sure, it happened once, but it'll never happen again. We've got more to say about Y2K, but uh, that's going to have to wait till after this break. All right. All right. Folks. So there there are a bunch. There, there are like many, much multiple other problems like like the Y2K problem. They're all time dependent. And they're all code dependent. Uh, however, the the year in which each one would hit its big old problem uh, is different from uh, one example to another, mostly because engineers have a wicked sense of humor. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not sure. OK, so so I don't I don't code. I'm not a programmer. I, I've never used um, any kind of back end sort of thing. I know how to make things bold in HTML on my own. Yeah. But, but that's that's about it. Um, but so so apparently in various programs, um, the beginning of time starts on various dates. Yeah. The beginning of time tends to be the date that whatever was created was put into uh, action, although not all all the time. So, And it can depend on the numerical system that the coding is using. Yeah. Um, I, I know for, for IBM PCs, the, the beginning of time is January 1st, 1980. Yep. And uh, it, it go, the time itself goes up in seconds. So the second is the base uh, integer for this whole thing. Okay. Um, and it's a 32 bit integer. So that means that if you, if you do the math and you're thinking, okay, it's a 32 bit integer, each second is another increment. So every second that passes goes up another one. If you're limited to 32 bits and your starting day is January 1st, 1980, you can extend that out and you see that in 2116, you have hit the limit of in- of the integers you have. You are no longer able to go up without rolling over. It's kind of like those old, all right, gather around that digital fireplace, children. In the old days, we had digital uh, like pinball machines. And once you hit a high score at a certain level, it would turn over, meaning it would go back to go zero. Go back to zero. 
I actually did that on the Star Trek one. I'll tell you about sometime. Congratulations. Anyway, yeah, I was, yeah, I had 17 free replays by the end of that. I ended up leaving because I couldn't keep playing all day. I was in college at the time. <laughs> Money well spent, mom and dad. Anyway, 2116 is when the, those integers will reach the limit, meaning that, uh, don't know what's going to happen after that. It's not going to be able to make these, these, uh, time dependent calculations accurately anymore because it won't be able to track time in a, in a way that makes sense to the computer anymore. So you would think, oh, well, clearly, all right, so we've got the Y2K problem and the 2116 problem with IBM PCs. But after that, we're okay, right? Well, uh, well, so, so Windows NT, um, uh, sets the beginning of time as January 1st, uh, 1601. (laughs) So apparently they were thinking like, okay, Shakespeare would totally use Windows NT. Just before, you know, shortly before he dies. So clearly he he would have written, you know, some of his greatest plays using a machine using Windows NT. So let's start the I have no idea why they chose January 1st, 1601. Uh, yeah. And OK, so so it uses a 64 bit integer to track time. So way more integers than, the you know, twice as much as the 32 bit integer that IBM PC did. Uh-huh. And furthermore, uses 100 nanoseconds as its increment. Oh, no. Um, so, so, so its problem is a year 2184. Right. So it's, here's the thing. It, it covers a much greater span of time, right? Because it starts uh, in 1601 and it won't end until 2184. So that's later than 2116. But because of that 100 nanosecond problem, that eats up those integers pretty quickly. If it had done it as a second integer, it would extend much further out. Uh, but Shucks. hey, hey, good, good news for Apple users. Uh huh. According to Apple, um, Mac is okay out to the year, uh, 29,940. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, not that it matters because you're going to update all your stuff every year anyway, you Apple fanboys. Huh. I'm saying that I'll love. I'm just, not entirely positive that you are. I, really? I mean, my wife has a iPhone. I, I love her. I've got a Mac. I mean, I'm granted my Mac is like eight years old at this point. It might actually be an Apple computer, not a Mac at well, this point. They might have devolved. But anyway, uh, yeah. At, so at, at any rate, all, all of these problems are going to be a little bit easier to fix than the Y2K problem. Yeah. Um, right. And, and it's one of those things where the Y2K problem, that was something that was so, uh, grounded in the very basic code that so many different uh, systems were using, that's pro- the scope of it was enormous, right? And we didn't have the tools available then that we do today for, for going in and, and uh, addressing kind of propagating this. things. Not out. only that, but we've got a greater time scale for all of these problems. It's not something that's, you know, five years away, uh, although... We can't just have the attitude of, oh, well, that's, you know, that's like 20 more years. We don't need to worry about that. No, we should definitely take the steps to address these issues. So, yes, yeah, is one of those things where we see it over and over again. Does it mean that we are done, that no one is ever going to make this kind of uh, mistake just for the sake of convenience or uh, or efficiency or economics? Uh, is, we're never going to make or, that mistake or again. Or just a, just a plain old mistake. Uh, no, we're human. We make mistakes. That's kind of, we that's do, kind we of our like thing. Them. They're, we, they're warm and fuzzy. It's us. Yeah. That's what, you know, we're good at that and making mistakes. I am great. I'm like, I learn from my mistakes. I can repeat them almost exactly. So, um, yeah, it's something that we'll probably see also pop up. And of course, those people will eventually be ridiculed. It's like, dude, don't you remember Y2K? And, uh, you know, we'll just, we'll relive this drama multiple times. Yay. Yay. But, 
hey, some of these are problems that are so far in the future that it's our descendants that are going to be worried about them unless we find some digital immortality or something. Yeah, see, there you go. See, I, I think that what all of this is not taking into consideration is that we are clearly going to hit the singularity. No, that's right. I forgot. In yeah. 20 to 50 years. Yes. Well, you know... It, we're getting, we're rapidly approaching what Kurzweil <laughs> said would be the singularity, and I'm a little skeptical right now, but hey, <laughs> it could be proven wrong. But you know, when we see problems like this rise up, it does make you wonder about that singularity and think maybe that, maybe that would only be uh, really super awesome for a very relatively short time until our code ran out. I hope you guys enjoyed that classic episode of Tech Stuff, and you learned a little bit about Y2K, and you wonder, you know, are we going to see this happen again? Because that's a fear. And uh, it really does show that sometimes a shortcut is not the best way to go about things. Sometimes it pays off to, you know, take the long route. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, get in touch with me and let me know what those might be. It can be a technology. It could be a company. It could be a trend in tech. The way to do that is to go over to Twitter and send me a message the handle that you should use to, to contact me is techstuffhsw, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 